Hello and welcome to this podcast brought to you by Just, the UK's first enforcement market integrator, and Aram, which has been helping organisations to prevent and resolve problem debt for over 25 years, with me, your host Steve Coppard. In this series, we'll be shining a light on issues that impact the debt industry by discussing topics as diverse as numeracy, illegal money lending and behavioural insights. It's time to grab a cuppa as we give credit where credit's due to our expert guests. For this episode, I was down in Lewis on the south coast to visit Ben Perkins at Plain Numbers. Numeracy was identified by the FCA as one of the risk factors for consumers of financial services that should be addressed in attempts to recognise consumer vulnerability. In fact, nearly half of the working age population in the UK has the expected numeracy level of a primary school child. And narrowing that down a bit, the FCA itself found that 34% of adults in the UK have poor to low levels of numeracy involving financial concepts. With consumer duty placing an onus on firms to communicate information in as simple a way as possible, I wanted to find out more. Let's dive straight into the interview and find out about Ben's expertise in this area. Hello and welcome to this edition of Credit Where Credit's Due. So, Ben. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Perkins. I'm the Head of Partnerships for Plain Numbers. And Plain Numbers is an organisation which you might not have heard of, um, but what we do is we work with organisations who communicate numerical information to help them to simplify that information with the goal of having more of their customers or readers or clients, whoever they might be, understanding that information. So we work a lot with financial services organisations, for example, major pension providers, major insurance um, companies, but also across sectors like utilities and debt management as well. Um, What we aim to do is to improve the way that numbers are communicated everywhere, because we know that so many people, in fact, up to half of the population, struggle with numbers and have numeracy levels expected of a primary school child. And therefore, it makes it a really difficult experience for them in managing their finances if so much of the information is numerically complex. Um, So our end goal is to change that and make sure that more people can understand the key information so they make the right decisions that work for them. What does it look like in a real person's life? How how does that that actually translate into uh, an experience for somebody? Yeah, I think that's a really, really important question. And I think the first thing to mention is that there's the skills shortage, perhaps, that I mentioned that some people are a part of. But for lots of people um, who are included in that, but also who might not be included in that, um, they experience this idea called maths anxiety, which is this fear or tension or panic or stress which comes over us when we see lots of numbers. And I'm sure lots of people listening will be able to relate to that on some level. And the way that those two things, the the poor skills and the maths anxiety, can translate into an experience can be that people might disengage with their finances altogether. So, for example, if something makes us feel anxious or uncomfortable, we tend to avoid it. Um, Obviously, that can lead to um, debt problems and it can lead to burying our head in the sand um, around some of the issues we have. But also it can lead to uninformed decisions as well. So when we may think that we have the information that we need or the firms that we we are customers of think we have the information we might need, we might not and therefore we make a decision that actually is really bad for us financially. Um, so for example, maybe we um, aren't saving enough for our pension because we didn't understand the communication um, on how to do that and why it was important. But to 
give it a kind of real story. I've worked for many years with lots and lots of people who experienced this mass anxiety effect. Um, it's really, really common, but one lady that I spoke to stands out to me in particular. Um, she was reaching out for debt um, support for the first time. She phoned up a, a Vice Line. Obviously, I won't name who they are because it could have happened at any advice line. And they asked her for information about her income and expenditure, as is relatively standard um, in these kind of phone calls. And she was stuck on income because she worked on shifts. Um, she was paid weekly. Um, so actually having to come up with an annual figure for what she earned was quite difficult if you hadn't already um, done the maths on it. But because she experiences this maths anxiety, she kind of described to me freezing up and feeling tense and embarrassed and feeling quite, maybe not being, but feeling quite pressured to come up with the um, answer and she felt like she couldn't give the information. She found the experience so embarrassing and uncomfortable for her that she put the phone down and she didn't reach out for debt advice again until she was £30,000 in debt. So that's obviously a very serious financial impact of someone having that feeling and being given inf information or, or, or commands from, from, from a firm that it weren't easy for her to understand or, or um, compute and it was the anxiety that stopped her completely. That can be the kind of the top end stuff but in lots of other examples people making maybe so important mistakes so for example if they don't understand the insurance quote and therefore they are underinsured or they're paying too much that can obviously have an effect on their finances as well. Just just to relate on a, on a personal level to that I was, I was looking for an insurance product last week and it's nice to have flexibility in your products, but there were so many options that I just closed that site down and went to a different mm. one because I just couldn't keep track in my own head. Is is it reasonable, do you think, to expect people to be able to engage and understand with the debt advice offering? Because that's obviously quite a, a, a standard but old school thing, asking for an annual income. Mm. Do we, do we have too much of an expectation on people to be able to understand what, what, what debt advice require from them? Yeah, I think there's some, some fairness in that. I think um, obviously totally understand that everyone who is offering debt advice or, or, or money guidance of any form is doing so for all of the right reasons and is doing the best that, that they possibly can with that. Um, but I do think it's an interesting question. Is it reasonable for people to ex to expect people to understand it in its current form? I think what I would definitely say in response to it is that its current form isn't as simple as it could or should be, um, and therefore there is an onus on those that want to be to be supporting people to to do things a little bit better. And I think it was interesting your example around the insurance um, piece. Um, there's something to be learned for for debt advice in there because a, a large part of our approach is about how we manage the communication so that it doesn't generate that kind of mass anxiety and very often we see across all sectors including debt management that there's a belief that if you tell everyone everything then that's better because it's more transparent and they understand more because they've got all the information actually what often turns out to be the case is you tell people the important thing in a fairly simple way and then you tell people loads of other stuff because you think it's going to be useful and they get confused by the other stuff and therefore believe that they don't understand the actual thing that was important um, and I think there's significant amounts that can be learned across across the sector around making sure that we're using the numbers that really matter to people and not just all of the available numbers. 
that's that's a that's a really interesting point but how do you then use maybe behavioral insights to make sure that you've got the critical pieces of information that stand out at the top of the first page yeah and i think for a lot of firms across all across all sectors but including those um in in the kind of debt advice area there are areas of constraint where there's a legislative or, or regulatory requirement for some information to be given which maybe isn't necessarily helpful information to the customer or helpful for the goal of consumer understanding um perhaps some difficulty squaring the, the, those kind of regulations but i also think that you're absolutely right in terms of yes we may have to give them some stuff but let's give them something else then that they will understand let's give them a two paragraph summary the main context of the main content of what's coming up is this and these are the really key things you need to know here's the rest of it for your information i saw a, a really good example of that recently it was a, a local authority council tax bill mm. um now i won't lie to you ben when when i get my council tax bill i look at how much i have to pay every month i don't look at the breakdowns i might look at some of the increases but it's a percentage of increase of this and then it's a percentage increase of that i haven't got time how how much have i got to pay every month that's the one number i look at so when people have fallen into arrears what this particular local authority has done is if they've got vulnerability indicators for that person then they send them a completely different letter with debt advice in a standalone box at the top it says we appreciate you may not be able to pay this right now and it's a completely different tone to what we have come to think of a council tax reminder being. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned a council tax bill as an example, because it's actually a, a piece that we use on our training for the people that implement the plain numbers approach, um, because we we think that there are some particular difficulties away that, around the standard way in which council tax is communicated. Um, and you mentioned there a really good example. It's the amount you pay each month and maybe the amount you pay in total that you really, really want to know, um, but you quite often get this kind of disruptive information at the top about percentage increases and all that kind of thing. Um, and while some customers may be interested in how much it's gone up by, um, there's a good example there of how we can make it easier for people by not giving them the percentage increase, just tell them how much it's gone up by, because otherwise you're leaving them to work that out. So one of the things that we, we think about in the collections and recovery space is the vast majority of people pay on time. And then you have what we would call self-clearances. So the people who pay with a nudge within a, a day or two, maybe their, their, their income was a day late. And then you have the people who, who generally we've seen with various studies over the, over the years, generally pay within 40 days. And we think that's largely because they probably couldn't afford it out of that month's money. The next month's come in by the time a direct debit is processed or however it's been paid, it, it's around 40 days, you get another drop off. So you've got a very small cohort left who haven't paid after that stage, who would have all had the standard communications. So we're not saying do a bespoke letter for everybody. We're just saying in the, that really small cohort of people, that's the time when you would really want to drop in a, a bespoke letter. So that would be how, how I would think about it. From, from your perspective then, I, I, guess, I guess you would say, no, go upstream. Yeah, I think there's um, there's something interesting about the question about bespoking because I think there's a, quite a powerful argument that rather than writing kind of bespoke pieces for different areas and different people who are, have different characteristics or perhaps vulnerabilities, 
that if you just make the original thing better for everyone, um, then everyone will benefit. Um, having said that, though, where there is opportunity for bespoke communication for better understanding or a better customer experience, I think we should be encouraging firms to think about, and the FCA has done this in, in the consumer duty, actually, particularly the commercial firms rather than the advice firms, that if this was a sales process and you thought that there was an advantage to bespoking it, you would without thinking about it. So once they're post-sold, um, if there's an advantage there to um, them having a different message that they'll understand better, then you should act in the same way as if they were someone that you could make money from. Um, and it's interesting to see the consumer duty using that kind of analogy um, for firms. And the firms that we work with are like that. that that is what they do. That's the nature of people that sign up to work with us, that they're, they're thinking about the customer. But I wouldn't argue that that's the case in, in, all, in all cases. I saw a, a piece last week from the FCA where they'd given out significant numbers of fines for financial institutions failing to tailor communications adequately for people for whom they should have known had particular vulnerabilities. And although it wasn't explicit, I've also heard the FCA talking recently about consumer duty becoming the lens through which they view all of the rest of the regulation. And the subtext of this piece that I read was it wasn't a good customer outcome. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting where firms are at the moment in terms of the consumer duty because there's been an interesting dynamic for me in that most firms, again, we work with particularly customer-centric firms, are welcoming of the concept and the idea and the notion of consumer understanding being a really important part of that. Um, but the practicalities of what that means have been really difficult for firms. And I have some sympathy there, actually, because, yes, what we're trying to do is improve customer understanding, but there's a difficulty in what does good customer understanding look like. So if we think into our research around this area, we found across five randomized control trials with market leading firms who were re quite good at communicating on the whole, we found that a third or less roughly um, of people were showing good understanding of an original communication. So. The plain numbers approach, for example, doubled that. Um, so that's an amazing result in terms of these kind of um, studies. But then you could also say, thinking about consumer duty, well, in one example, we doubled it from 19% to 40%, so just over doubled. What about the other 60%? And it's a difficult one because it's not possible for the FCA for obvious reasons to say, well, we're going to set a threshold of 100% of people have to understand things because that's realistically a long way from where we are at the moment across all FS sectors. But also it's not possible for them to say, well, if you reach 40% and it used to be 20, then that's great, good for you, because they are stuck with this idea that it will look like they're saying it's okay for 60% of people to not understand. And I think that's what's caused a lot of challenge for firms and I think the reality is that if you doubled the understanding of your communication that would more than satisfy um, what, what's been looked for but they can't say that. Yeah I completely agree I, I saw believe it was Dominic Middleton from the FCA um, talking recently uh, a money advice liaison group event and he was also alluding to um, a publication that Sheldon Mills had put out on the FCA's website 
it went back to this product versus principles argument. So do we tell you what good looks like? Or do we, do we set you the parameters within which you then try and work out what good looks like for you? And Dominic's point was really, really quite valid. So he said, we are looking at every type of financial, every organisation that comes under our regulation, at every possible part of the customer journey, and how, how it's just not possible for them to say what good looks like in every single scenario for every single customer. So that's why it has to be culture of the company that drives that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And that that's what we're trying to do with the partners that we work with to help them embed a new approach into their culture and into their processes. And what we find with the play numbers approach is that it manifests itself quite differently in different scenarios. So when we look at some of the stuff that um, can be seen on our website examples, they don't all look like the same thing. And the reason is the dynamics are different all the time. The intent is different. What the customer needs to do or needs to learn is different each time, even if it's the same communication, but for a different brand, because there's been a slightly different customer journey to get there. And therefore, the point that, that you made there about how difficult it would be to show what good looks like every time is valid. But also, I'm not sure it would be helpful mm. because we've seen before other communications that are templated in such a restrictive way that actually it doesn't give the firms the freedom to do something like, oh, in our scenario, we know the number one thing that the customer needs to know and struggles with in this concept is this thing. Let's put it right first. They can't do that with a template. I don't. So I don't necessarily think um, it's a helpful thing to do and that f firms need to take that kind of that ma mantle and almost like self-regulate their culture to make sure that everything's being done through that lens of customer first. And I think sometimes when people are told what specifically what they have to do, that level of restriction, I'm just thinking of an example that I learned about just last week, actually, in terms of regulation, looking at some pensions information. And there are obviously risks that have to be declared, and rightly so, um, around certain products and, and certain investments. But this particular piece of regulation said that they had to all appear on one single A4 page. From a customer comprehension point of view, I would argue that each one appearing throughout the document nearer to the thing that the warning is relevant for makes it a more useful warning um, rather than all on the same page. But then that's been done because it was believed to be the right thing to do. It wasn't seen as a problem. So that's not a criticism of the, uh, of the regulator in any way. They were trying to give prescriptive regulation for the right reasons. Just do it like this and it'll be fine. But as it transpires, it's actually a bit of a a conflict with helping the customer. Do you often see people putting uh, uh, something into into a letter and then saying, let's test that as it comes back? Yes. Yeah. And I think testing is a really important part of it as well, because whatever the approach you're using and, and, and ours is no different, there are always kind of principles that need to be applied. Um, almost there's a science behind it to an extent, but then there's always this kind of artistic thing where people have to make decisions have to make choices you come up with some that could go either way we have done enough testing in the past to be really pleased on the principles and we know that if you apply them that will get better results but it will be really common for someone to be working on something and something to be a bit 50 50 could do it like that you could do it like that maybe it depends on the nature of your customer base or it depends on what it is that you want them to do next or all, all that kind of thing and that's when the testing com comes in really valuable because you can actually see but i think the most important thing to say about testing for 
any communications, um, but including debt communications or any financial communications, is that we quite often across many sectors are a bit unclear on what it is we're actually testing. And the, and the reason that I say that um, is that lots of firms will see themselves as testing comprehension already. Um, and what they might actually be testing is perceived understanding of something. So maybe asking a focus group, for example, is this, is this easy to understand? Do you understand this? Does this all look clear and fair? What we found in our research is that across all, all cases that we looked at, as is common in behavioural science, about 70% of people said yes. Then when you ask them to demonstrate it by asking them questions about what the communication actually says and seeing if they can get the answer, that's when we got very different results. So I guess the thing that I'm saying about testing is if we want to know if customers genuinely understand it, we need to have a look at our testing processes and say, well, are we asking things that elicit that answer? Or are we just getting a tick box? Yes, I understand it. And we're getting seven out of 10, probably people saying yes. Um, and is that enough for us? Um, and I like to think that a lot of firms, once they've seen that will realize that no maybe it's not it was the the behavioral science bit was was what prompted my question there i so i read a, a report a while back now from Ofgem. they did the qualitative and the quantitative testing and they found that sending if the first communication that was sent out the very first reminder was very harsh not only did it drive people's engagement down to that communication but it also drove it down for subsequent communications. And I also think in, in terms of customer understanding as well, it's quite easy to create an effect. And maybe as a sector, um, pensions is an area that is very much in this place where the first time you, you talk to something about someone about something and they don't understand it, and then if it happens again a second time, people start to think, oh, I'm not going to understand that anyway, so they don't even bother. Um, and I can imagine situations where people are getting um, debt support, maybe debt management plans and stuff, and they're getting statements through and they see the kind of big block of numbers that you typically get on a debt management plan statement and they just go, well, I didn't understand that last time, so I won't understand that this time and just throw it aside. Um, and obviously that's not what we what we want them to be doing. So there is some relevance there in terms of debt collection because as, as you say, if you put people off the first time in terms of the, the tone of it, then it can have that effect. Also, if they don't understand what they're supposed to do the first time, it may also have that effect. Some, something you, you said earlier made, made me think around the comprehension point that, you know, may, maybe maybe sometimes where the comprehension isn't great, if we're not doing the testing, looking at the outcome of the letter isn't necessarily the right thing to do either because, like me with my council tax bill, I may not necessarily understand it. I'd probably work it down it out if I sat down and, and set up a spreadsheet and went through it all. But the fact I pay every month doesn't necessarily mean that I understood the letter that they sent me. So the outcome isn't necessarily a good test of comprehension either. Yeah, absolutely. And I think obviously this move towards outcomes based regulation, I think is a fantastic thing because that's what we're all about. And we see that comprehension is a step towards that but it is possible for people to not understand and then be seen to have had a good outcome but it might not have been a good outcome or it might have been by chance it doesn't mean that they would get the same outcome next time so for example if I'm buying an insurance product you could measure that outcome in the short term of me getting this 
this new um, home contents insurance. And I've estimated the value of my belongings, I don't know, £5,000 or something. Got a good price, very happy, looks like a good outcome. It's not a good outcome if I then go to claim on the insurance for something that I thought was covered and isn't. And I end up having to cover that personally. And maybe it's a very significant amount of money. That's not a good outcome. So I think we always have to be aware of the fact that comprehension is something tangible that can be measured with the hypothesis it leads to good outcomes. But good outcomes themselves are a little bit too subjective. What's a good outcome to you, for example, might not be good for me. So in, in the grand scheme of things, then, where does numeracy fit? Is it the answer or is it an important piece of the puzzle? I think it's a really important piece of the puzzle. And I think it's one of the most forgotten about pieces of the puzzle. Listeners might be familiar with the occasional paper eight from the FCA, which was all about um, vulnerability. And they identified lots of really important factors that might be able to make people um, financially vulnerable, one of which was numeracy for the first time, which is, which was interesting. Um, but when you put the figures on that and the FCA include the data um, in that publication, what you see is that poor numeracy is the vulnerability that affects the single largest number of adults. So what I'm not saying is that one person who's affected by perhaps dementia or they're living with cancer or they have no internet or, or whatever other vulnerability they might have is impacted in the same way as one person who has poor numeracy. That would be a crass comparison. But what it does demonstrate is that this is a huge proportion of the population, about 20 million adults. And what we've begun to observe was that almost all um, organisations that we work with and, and have spoken to do really fantastic, important work. Lots still to do, but st have started important work on every other vulnerability um, that's included in the occasional paper eight. But no attention is very often given to the way that numbers are communicated and therefore people who struggle with numbers are kind of left out of that a little bit. It's really important though that we recognise that customer understanding is an essential part of good debt advice and an essential part of good customer outcomes. Um, but there are other things. Uh, without the customer understanding, you're going to have difficulty getting them the best outcome. But that doesn't mean to say that by, for example, communicating in plain numbers, addressing the, the, the numeracy worries of people, that that's great and nothing else is going on in their lives. But of course, that that's not how it is. But for some people, there will be a proportion out there who are in a difficult situation because of misunderstandings and that being the main factor. But there'll be lo lots of other factors in their, in their lives too. And the fact remains that when you address consumer understanding, particularly from a numbers perspective, you do make the experience better for everyone. So even if someone is in debt and getting advice for very different reasons, it wasn't misunderstanding, that experience for them is nicer if they can, if they can understand what, what it is they're being given and what they're being told. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation so far, Ben. You you obviously care a lot about this. What's in it for, for the businesses that you work with? Yeah, I think there's a lot in it for businesses as well as customers. And I think the first thing that I would say is that for the businesses we work with, they care about the customer and that matters. Um, so that in and of itself um, is significant. If more customers can understand it, they're better able to avoid any kind of financial harms that they might come across but also they're better able to meet their own financial goals. Again, obviously understanding 
within that is, is a component, not all of it. If there simply isn't enough money, then understanding that isn't going to get them into, into a better financial position. But it's an important part of being able to work towards those, those goals. So there's that in and of itself. But for businesses as well, by doing this positive thing for their customers, I really think there's significant benefit for, for them as well. So one example is obviously being compliant with, with regulations that are coming up if, if they're FCA regulated, but also um, better customer understanding can, can lead to things like reduced contact with their call centers, um, less time chasing payments and, uh, and, re and redu reduction in overheads. We've also seen some evidence recently from some of our partners that when you apply the plain numbers approach and you're really clear with people, their vision of you as a brand improves and therefore you get great greater loyalty among the customers for some sectors as well it's also just a commercially good thing if the customer does what they're meant to do for example pay more into a pension it's good for them too um so i think there's a really important thing where we are in, in the landscape at the moment for firms where customers understanding is really high on the agenda that that is seen as much as an opportunity for customers and businesses as it is a challenge, which undoubtedly it also is. And it doesn't become one of those things that people feel, oh, we've, we've got to do this because we have to do it. Actually, it's one of those things that's good for everyone and a great opportunity for firms to take. Bringing this all back to where we started, the, the lady you spoke about who had been unable to articulate her annual income and then not been able to pick up the phone again until she was £30,000 in debt. What would her experience have been like, do you think, if some of the, the solutions that we've spoken about and some of the challenges, if those challenges weren't there, if the solutions were in place, what do you think her journey could have looked like instead? I think in that situation, there's something important to say that that journey that she was on would always have been difficult and an uncomfortable moment in, in her life. Um, but that's the nature of that kind of experience. What I think the key difference would have been is that if somebody on the phone just had an, or people writing letters about if it was a different scenario, had just a clearer understanding that for some people, A, numbers are difficult, but B, it causes this kind of emotive reaction that she had because in, in, in the sector, people are giving debt advice because they really want to help people. I think even just knowing that it might have been maths anxiety, no, she wasn't being difficult. She wasn't like concealing information. Then I think the person would have behaved differently. Um, and they would have, um, therefore given the, the customer the opportunity to have a completely different experience, which still would have had some bumps along the road, but it would, it, I'm confident that had that incident not happened because the communication was clearer and easier for her to deal with, that it would have been a smoother journey to, to debt relief. Um, and I remember her to telling me as well at the time, um, that she's quite confident in that as well. Um, so I guess if, if, if anyone's listening and that kind of mass anxiety thing, um, does relate to them, what we want to see is um, organizations really thinking about that in terms of their cultural shift amongst consumer duty. We often think about, do people understand the words we use? Do people understand the jargon? And again, there's more work to be done on that, but we think about it all the time. Um, and we need to be thinking, do people understand the numbers we use? And what, what are these numbers actually telling someone? And is it fair to expect them to understand that? Ben Perkins, thank you very much.
thank you for listening to the podcast and I hope you found it as insightful as I did. If you want to hear more great content from Aram and Just, then please subscribe on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts or follow us on LinkedIn so that we can let you know when the next one is out. Until then, if you'd like to discuss any of the issues that were raised in this podcast, then please get in touch with me either on LinkedIn or drop me an email to stephen.coppard at aram.co.uk. Once again, my thanks to Ben Perkins and Plain Numbers for investing the time to talk to us and goodbye for now.